Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. Hello and a very warm welcome to the Lizard Wellbeing Show. And in this week's episode, I am chatting to the brilliant chartered psychologist and author Kimberly Wilson. Now, alongside her thriving private practice, Kimberly is a governor of the Tavistock and Portman NHS Mental Health Trust and formerly led the therapy service at HMP and YOI Holloway, which at the time was Europe's largest women's prison. She is truly an amazing, amazing woman and a fount of knowledge when it comes to mental health and the simple things that we can all do to keep our brains fit and healthy. Once a finalist on the Great British Bake Off, amazing, and with a degree in nutrition, Kimberly loves her food and is particularly passionate about food and lifestyle and how it interacts with our mental health. Now, I have to say, we have just had the most fascinating, mood-boosting and in some parts, enraging conversation. So I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts on Instagram after the show. And don't forget that if you'd like to watch our chat today, the video podcast is available on YouTube. So without further ado, please, let's hear it from Kimberly. So Kimberly, a very warm welcome to my podcast. Oh my goodness, I've been I've been stalking you for a while actually. So I'm really interested <laughs> and pleased that you made the time to be with us today. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for having Can me. Can we start with a, just a little bit of background about you? I mean, obviously I've given you a big build up, rightly so, but how did you become to be so interested in the brain and mental health? What was your journey? Um, it's fairly direct journey to be honest um and I say that because quite often people come into kind of practitioner psychology therapy as a second career it's usually something people come into and and it's unusual to go straight in I knew at 16 that I wanted to be a psychologist yeah and I kind of just followed it in a very kind of straight line um and so that's and that came out really of an interest or in in people and being a people watcher I was quite quiet and more of a kind of um, watcher when I was younger I guess uh, more of an introvert Um, and being curious as to why two people could have a completely different response to the same situation and what Mm. was it about them that made that the outcome for them um and then of course 
as part of your training, you you learn a little about the brain, but then going through my training and my career, actually realizing that as practitioner psychologists, charter, you know, counseling or clinical psychologists, health psychologists, we don't actually think that much about the underlying health of the brain. We think a lot about the outcomes of brain dysfunction in terms of kind of mental illness and depression and um, issues with maybe self-esteem or personality concerns, but we don't actually think that much about the brain. And it's just a bit of an anomaly in terms Mm. of we're helping people work with the outcomes of the functions of their brains, but not thinking about the underlying health of that organ. And so I decided that it would be quite important for me and for my clients, for me to have a better understanding Mm. of how that worked. I mean, really fascinating. And I guess for you working in this sphere now has never been a more interesting, unfortunately. Uh, mm-hmm. And I use that in, in the word, in the, the words of the, the the Chinese curse, you know, may you live in interesting times. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, we are obviously living in a very interesting, quote, time globally. And we just seem to be in the middle of this mental health crisis. You know, what is the state of mental health here in the UK from somebody, you know, working right at the sharp end? Um, Well, it's really pretty bad, to be honest. And I think what the pandemic has done and what it revealed was that it it pulled back the veil on the people who were were just about coping. So we quite often think about the people who are overtly unwell and and very visibly unwell. And those are the ones that we, we talk about most often. But what we miss is this big group of people in the middle between on the spectrum between wellness and illness this big group of people who were just about coping who were very stressed but were perhaps you know coping by exercising a lot or distracting themselves from what was happening at home by by being at work or you know just being out every night in order to take their mind off things and what the pandemic did and what the lockdown did was to take away a lot of people's coping mechanisms and I think what that revealed was a lot of the cracks both in our general mental health as a population but also in our service provision Mm. you know we suddenly were much more aware of the waiting times for eating disorder services the waiting times for access to psychological therapies the difficulty to get a GP appointment all of those things it really I think pulled back the veil on a system which is had been on the brink, has been on the brink for a very long time. There's been a lot of talk, actually, I've seen it on social media about the just the extraordinarily you know, negative impact of lockdowns. And it, it's just seemed to highlight the fact that we are such social beings and, mm-hmm. and actually, you know, locking down the society, I think, has had, I don't know whether you'd agree with this from a professional point of view, but so many more unexpected negative consequences that we perhaps just didn't realise when we were doing it. I think so. But I think there are a few additional pieces to that. So there was was the length of the lockdown to start with. I think had had it been shorter, you know, this would have been uh, much more manageable for a lot of people. But the nature of the stress, the, you know, unmanageable, uncontrollable stress Mm -hmm. of suddenly being thrust into the middle of a pandemic is A, the worst kind of stress for the brain. But then it went on for such a long time. And again, without those coping mechanisms that it really wore down and undermined Mm. what otherwise would have been natural resilience. So I think many more people would have coped had it in the same circumstances over a shorter period of time. But I also, I feel quite keenly that the quality of the messaging 
was absolutely atrocious yeah. and actually added to the psychological burden for a lot of people. Oh my goodness. I mean, you just couldn't um, escape it, could you? That the I mean the extraordinary. I mean maybe they felt that they had to kind of over-egg it to to make us take it seriously. But it was really, and still is, I mean, you see the imagery, the posters, the choice of colours, the the black and yellow hazard tape around any kind of picture that was posted. You know, it's all very psychological, isn't it? It feels very kind of psychologically, um, you know, controlling. It really is. But, and it's it's terrifying. Yeah, terrifying. And I think you're right. At the beginning, it was, they decided that they needed to terrify people into conforming and complying with the rules. But I think that uh, the other part of that, and you know, I think specifically is that there is a way to convey difficult information that helps people to feel that it is being managed. Right. <laughs> and I think mm. when you are conveying difficult information, you need to be clear. You need to not make promises that you can't keep. Mm. And you need to very, very be very careful about setting up people's expectations because we're a species we're a group of people who will invest in a future outcome and so we saw it particularly at christmas where we were told you'll definitely have your christmas you know you can have whatever it was at the time six people or whatever at christmas and people after a long what had it been half a year at that point were looking forward to it and had invested in it and we start getting our hopes Mm. up and we start putting you know pieces of ourselves into this you know future event and then it was very suddenly taken away and I think that kind of things it it literally sets people up to Mm. crash and I was I was quite angry about that and I think when you're conveying difficult information you need to be very cautious and you need to say look I can't promise you this will happen we will work towards this but it's contingent on this and this and this. And I don't think that messaging was put across in a psychologically helpful way. So how important then is hope? Because that, that's what you're saying, isn't it, really, is that we need to, we need to see that there is hope and, and that the reason we're being asked to do things and do do things is because there's going to be a positive and hopeful outcome. I think hope is hugely important, but I think there's also... The, the skill and the art of containing anxiety. You know, what we had is a very anxious population. And part of the messaging cranked up that anxiety, said you should be worried, this virus is everywhere, it's possibly deadly, we don't know who's got it, some people won't have symptoms, you know, we really cranked up the anxiety on that. But then you can you can contain that anxiety, or you can do what you can to contain that anxiety. And, and that comes from, if you think about it, um, about taking on a good parental role. Like, I'm reassuring. in charge. I'm going to do my best to look after you. Yes, be reassuring. Here are the facts. I'm not going to make false promises. And these are the boundaries. Mm. And I think we saw other heads of state do that very mm. well. Um, Jacinda Ardern did that very, very well. Um, but actually, I think our, in the UK, I don't know where this yeah, will be aired, but I think in the UK, <laughs> <laughs> the, um, 
the anxiety, the national anxiety was not very well mm. contained by those who were in the position to, to do was that. Was that because it, it's not front of mind? I mean, to, to, you know, excuse the pun, that actually, you know, we're very well used, I think, to dealing with physical illness, perhaps that's very visible and obvious. But perhaps, I mean, maybe certainly mm-hmm. at a governmental level, the state of people's mental health and the state of anxiety is perhaps not considered as, as a really important national mm. asset, if you like. Absolutely. And I think that's absolutely true. I think because the brain and mental health is out of sight and out of mind, and I think there's still quite a significant stigma around it, you know, shouldn't we just pull ourselves together? It's like the war. Why can't we have blitz spirits, stiff upper lip? You know, this idea that we could just get on with it without recognising that this was an, an extraordinary national and global crisis. And therefore, there should have been some forethought in terms of the psychological, the mm. risks of the psychological health um, of the nation. I think it just wasn't thought about. What, what occurred to me was when I was watching all of the the updates oh, and the, yeah. the the press conferences was there is absolutely no psychological cons- consultation behind right. the scenes here. That that is absolutely apparent <laughs> to me. We, we, we need um, to get you. We, we need to get you sitting on stage, Kimberly. <laughs> Clearly, there's, there's, there's a massive role for you here, and I'm sure that people in your profession, you know, are deeply worried and extraordinarily busy. What sort of psychological problems are you are you seeing as the most common? What what sort of things are you facing? I think we've seen a real increase in or a reduction in just general well being. People are sleeping. Yeah. much worse than they were before. There's a lot of anxiety, there's a lot of worry and people not being able to get to sleep. And then that has knock-on effects because if you can't sleep, you're much less resilient, you're much more anxious, you're much more agitated, you have much less patience, you have poorer concentration, your work suffers, all of that. So sleep problems um, are up there. Um, we saw a lot of people turning to food um, or their relationships with food. So either an increase in comfort eating, which, you know, to degrees it's fine, pounds. it's very yep. stressful. Is Exactly. Um, and, and that's, you know, I, I don't think there's any need to condemn that. We saw, but we saw a lot of people turning to food or their relationships with their, their bodies. And that in an attempt to gain some sense of control in this uncontrollable situation, people turned to focusing on, well, I'll just get as fit as I can, or I'll, you know, try to lose weight, or I'll try to make sure I don't put on weight. And so we, there's been and, and a lot of relapse. So I've seen a lot of people who were perhaps managing their eating disorder quite well or they were okay yeah. they were stable relapsed during I have lockdown. heard that actually my, I mean, I've got two young daughters and I, I'm you know relatively plugged into their age group sort of in in in, in their 20s mm-hmm. and the the number of eating disorders that I'm now aware of in that circle is really terrifying actually and I think that's mm-hmm. very interesting your point about mm-hmm. it being an element of life that they feel they can control perhaps and, and everything else is outside of their control yeah but controlling what they eat and controlling their bodies. And it's, yeah, it's it's a big legacy. And I think at the moment, sadly, there don't seem to be many provisions for for young people. What sort of resources do you point people in the direction of if we've got people who are listening who perhaps are affected or have people in their families or or circle of friends who are affected? Where where would you point them to? Well, you would point them towards your GP. I'm kind of in the opposite position because most people come to me after having 
been on the waiting list right. for a long time yeah. for NHS services. Um, and so, and they've decided that they, they can't wait or it's kind of risky for them to wait longer. Um, so I will either refer to, you know, my network of, of colleagues, whether they are dietitians, psychiatrists, mm. other, other psychologists. Um, but I think the real problem is that there is really inadequate uh, provision and there's been there's been big investment in terms of young people um young people with eating disorders but there are a lot of older really? people older women who have been suffering with an eating disorder all mm. of their adult lives and it's just been either because it's a generation where women were expected to just maintain a, a particular physique and therefore it wasn't really questioned or because by now they think, well, actually this is a teenage or a young person's illness and it's embarrassing or somehow shameful to go to their doctor in their in their 30s, 40s or 50s and say, actually, I struggle with this. That there are this, this lost mm. generation of women who have been struggling with their diet and with their bodies for a very, very long time for whom I don't even, I'm not convinced the provision really exists in an yeah. adequate way yeah, to serve that, them. That's, yeah. That's not not good news. Well, hopefully by raising awareness of it, we can at least start those conversations uh, and see, you know, what we can do. I mean, this is very much, you know, campaigning and raising awareness, a lot of what we do at, at, at Les Our Wellbeing here. Absolutely. How much control can we have over our mental health, do you think? I mean, coming back to basics, how much of it is, is genetic? It's mm. the, the deck of cards that we're dealt at birth. And how much is actually within our own influence? So what the research is showing us is that there is an increasing understanding that we have some influence over our general psychological well-being and that's really good news given the context of you know the things we've just been discussing in terms of uh, poor provision and overstretched services the idea that there is something that you can do to support yourself is really really both empowering but essential in terms of keeping people as well as possible for as long as possible. So whilst things like the heritability, so the kind of genetic association of someone's depression might be somewhere in the region of kind of 30 to 50 percent, you know, the, the old adage that the genetics loads the gun, but it doesn't put, it's the environment that, that puts the trigger. That, that's a good, I've not, I never heard that one before. That's, that's really good to know. You can have a loaded gun, but actually that trigger doesn't have to be pulled doesn't have to be pulled and that there are things that you can do to mitigate and actually the and, and I say this very very cautiously because what I don't want people to go away with the idea of is that this is all personal responsibility and if you've had yeah. depression it's because you haven't tried hard enough that's not the case at all but it's about saying really if depression for example is an outcome a feature of your brain, the, the function and dysfunction of your brain, then supporting your brain health is going to support, support those outcomes in the same way that if high blood pressure is a function of the health of your heart and your arteries, then doing things in your lifestyle to help support the health of your heart and your arteries is going to have beneficial mm. effects on your blood pressure. It might not solve it. And if you have genetic heart disease, it's not gonna mm. fix it, but it could help to mitigate. And so for example, we know that improving nutrition, so moving people from maybe a highly processed or Western style diet, um, and Professor Julia Rutledge is, you know, says 
every single time I speak to her, there is absolutely no study that shows that the Western <laughs> diet is good for mental health. You know, there are lots of studies showing that the Mediterranean diet is good for mental health, but the diet that most of us in the West are eating and, and that children are increasingly eating, one that is kind of highly processed, high in free sugars, high in salt and fat, has never been shown to be supportive of mental health and quite the opposite. In studies where you can do interventions, where you know you put someone on a more Western style diet or you increase their intake of, of these nutrients, they have poorer mental health outcomes. They have more depression, they have poorer sleep, they have more anxiety. And so we know that improving nutrition for lots of different reasons improves brain health and mental health outcomes. The same with exercise, so improving, um, increasing regular physical activity in any way that feels good for you is protective against depression and helps to manage and reduce anxiety. And, you know, and, and that's so important because these disorders, they're called the common mental health disorders, anxiety and depression are the ones that afflict, you know, sometimes 50, 60% of the population. And so if you can give people that information and empower them with that knowledge that a few little tweaks you know I, I start people off and I say can you take a five minute walk every morning because actually it's more about consistency than effort I don't want you to go out and start running 10k every other day if we can start with consistency and getting you moving and helping you to build that into a habit then actually what we're building is what I call mm. whole body mental health influencing how your body works which includes your brain to help increase improve your your mental health outcomes i love that that is just so very positive hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Can we take a, a look now at food? I know that's a big part of your work. And obviously, it's a big part of my work, too. <laughs> and I'm really interested in linking food with mental health and nutrition, particularly. What kind of things could we be mm -hmm. eating for improved mood? Are, are there such foods? Well, yes and no. So no in the sense that 
having a salad isn't just going to make you feel better within the next half hour. Um, but yes, in terms of uh, the, the epidemiology, so the big observational studies that look at 10,000, 15,000 people, the prospective studies, which look at people's diet at baseline, and then their risk of developing depression over several years, and the intervention studies, so taking people with depression and a poor diet, changing their diet, all of these come together to show us that improving your nutrition can reduce your risk and severity of depression. The foods that seem to be most important for that seem at the moment to be, and this is literally mm -hmm. the hill I will die on. Um, yes. The, the yeah. omega-3 fatty acids. <laughs> so <laughs> flying yeah. the flag, tooting the horn. Like I really, I really need people to understand the importance of these fats for brain health and brain structure. They are structural fats. They are the building blocks. They form at least 30% of the outer wow. membrane of your brain cells. And so yeah. if you, and you can only get them through the diet. So, and I, I, the analogy I use is of a house. If you're building a house, if your brain is a house that is being built, not having these fats in your diet is like taking one wow. in every three bricks out of that house. The house will yeah. still stand, but it's going to be much more vulnerable. Do you worry then for vegans and vegetarians who may be low in omega-3s? Is there a link then with poorer mental health outcomes? Um, the I do worry. I Privately and quietly, I worry. I've done a couple of podcasts and, and certainly posts on, on my social media to ensure that people who don't eat animal foods are understanding the importance of these nutrients for their overall brain health. Because what will often happen is that someone will switch to a mm. vegan diet, often with, without knowing that meat isn't just protein or animal foods aren't just protein. They also contain really important nutrients like the omega-3 fats, like B12. B12, which again is predominantly, mm. if not exclusively found in animal foods, is mm. so important to brain function that deficiency in B12 <gasps> can mimic dementia. Yeah. And, no. and, and if you don't know that, and then you switch to a, a, an all, um, you know, a fully plant-based diet, then you're going to start, you know, initially people mm -hmm. tend to feel better, cause, often because they're eating more fruits and vegetables. Um, but over time, when they start to feel fatigued, loss of energy, a little bit forgetful, they're much less likely to think, is it something that I'm not eating? Because we have this idea that meat and, and, and fish is just about protein. And actually people, mm. if you're going to cut something out of your diet, yeah. you need to understand what effect it might have on your brain health. And for example, with the B vitamins, uh, so thinking about what's called mild cognitive impairment, which is not necessarily definitely going to lead to Alzheimer's disease, but it's often a precursor to Alzheimer's disease. So it's a kind of forgetfulness, poorer concentration, more difficulty following a conversation that's associated with, you know, we call it normal brain aging. But people with mild cognitive impairment, when you supplement them with omega-3s and B vitamins, have much slower decline in their brain health. So essentially wow. their brains age much more slowly than people who aren't getting those nutrients. So omega-3s, B yes. vitamins, 
brightly colored foods, those would be the ones that I would always direct people to. Um, those leafy green vegetables, for example, there was a lovely study which showed that, again, older people who ate leafy green vegetables every day, just a handful, had brains that were 11 years younger than their peers. 11 years younger. That's phenomenal. Isn't it just extraordinary? With just a few greens, you know, the, the amount of spinach wow. that you, you throw into a sandwich, that kind of thing. Yeah, it is, isn't it? I love that. You know, small change, big difference. I mean, that is that is really, without medicalizing it, that's, that is so empowering. One of the things that I'm particularly keen to talk to you about, Kimberly, is your work in prisons. And this is something that mm. I have often thought mm. about. And if you'll indulge me just for a couple of minutes, just to, 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 to talk about my, my take on this. And there of are two course, things, really. Please. One is I've been looking at work with brain chemistry, looking at high levels of copper and low levels of zinc, increasing the risk of violent and aggressive mm. tendencies and how that has been shown in young offenders um, prisons where young men particularly have been tested and they've been found to have these nutritional deficiencies and I just think that is tragic if they are you know there because something has been triggered by a nut nutritional deficit and the other one is I really wanted to do a study, and maybe you can help me in, in the future. We could work on this. I, I know that you you talk a lot about the gut-brain axis, and mm. so do I, is the role of probiotics. And again, mm. looking at some of the specific probiotics in terms of, again, you know, aggression and, and calm and the production of oxytocin and all these good positive hormones. Mm. Wouldn't it be amazing to do a clinically controlled trial where, where you're giving kind of like kefir every morning the prisoners who would be a great control group because they can't go anywhere. They haven't got <laughs> access to, you know, to eating anything else. And just seeing how mood and, and behavior mm -hmm. changes. I mean, what what do you think to those kinds of things? It's uh, It was the first and it, it should have, it really should have triggered a seed change in the way we think about nutrition. And, we, and it should have really shaken the entire... British judicial system. Um, and so it was a study that was published in 2002 and it looked at the, the impact of improving nutrition on young offenders. And so it took a group of young offenders, a few hundred young men, um, and split them into two groups. And you're absolutely right, it's, it's a very good uh, environment for a controlled trial because as long as you get the buy-in from the rest of the prison and, you, and they're not kind of sent off into other locations, they're there. Um, and so they gave half of the young men a placebo and they gave the other half a nutritional supplement, omega-3s, uh, vitamins and minerals for eight weeks. And what they found at the end of the study, and they were looking at objective incidents of violence. So when you work in prison, when there's uh, something that goes off on the wing, the and, and maybe a wing is, say, 50 men there's the officers or the adjudication book that sits in the office at the end of the wing and if there's a fight or if there's an incident of self-harm or if right. someone smashes up their cell it goes in the book and so this is what they were looking at in terms of counting how many incidents there were and in the supplemented group they found a 30 percent wow. reduction in incidents wow. of violence in eight weeks compared to placebo yeah and and that oh was in 2002, goodness. right? So this is 20, 19 years ago, nearly 20 years ago. And I spoke to the lead uh, researcher on 
on that study and he said that they were asked to do an economical analysis to find out how much it would cost in order to roll this out because obviously a prisons are very violent it can be very mm. violent places and particularly if you think about lockdown when people were only getting mm. half an hour a day if they're out yeah. of their cells it becomes a very fraught very stressful place it's very difficult for staff morale can be incredibly low so violence is a, a big financial and safety issue and they did an economic analysis and it turned out that it might cost something like 10 or 11 pence a day to supply these these supplements to the prisoners so that's that's one big study and that's really important but it's just one study and what's important in science is replication and actually they have replicated this so in 2012 they did another replication in the netherlands in the prisons and they found a bigger effect they found i think it was 34 percent improvement but in that study the control group got worse so the actual difference was something like 45 percent in terms of incidents of violence and then last year there was another replication in Southeast Asia and Singapore. So we actually have a lot of sure. randomized control trial, the kind of gold standard in terms of causation data, demonstrating that if you take a group yeah. of, of prisoners and improve their nutrition, you reduce violence, you improve behavior, you improve outcomes. And I am astounded, yeah. dismayed, shocked, um, that we are doing absolutely nothing with this evidence. It is chilling to hear about that. And the cost is so small. The benefit is so great. The downside is zero. And not only we talk about mental health and improvement in prisons and safety of staff and better outcomes for the prisoners when they're released, but also think about mm -hmm. the health benefits, you know, the lack of, of draw on the, the health service later for helping to mm -hmm. ward off degenerative disease. Absolutely. It is just astounding. I seriously hope that there are a lot of people listening today who are perhaps in some way connected in towers of power somewhere, be they, you know, related to prisons or judiciary or, or you know, public health, mm. because it just seems like a no brainer. And I guess when you expand that also out to a wider society, if you're saying that it improves aggressive behavior or diminishes it by 30%, that is going to be the same for the outside community. So obviously not everyone who mm. has aggressive tendencies is going to be in prison. They're going to be a significant number yeah. of them, you know, outside. And, and we think about things like domestic violence as well, and all sorts of other mm -hmm. areas of, you know, and gang culture with, with young people. Surely if we start to get our whole society onto better nutrition, it does seem like an enormous mountain to climb though, doesn't it? It, it really does. And, you know, I, I talk about this, this quite a lot, this, the, these prison studies. And I understand, and I think particularly if you haven't worked in prison, I can understand that people don't really have much sympathy for prisoners. You know, they've done the crime and why should we be taking, you know, a soft position on them? But I think the, the bigger story and the greater tragedy here is that we see the same effects in children. And... And that's both with child hunger and also child mm. malnutrition. And it, of course, because children's brains are rapidly developing, children's brains can be using up about, you know, sometimes 60% of their energy demand. Gosh. You know, the, your brain wow. is incredibly hungry and incredibly nutritionally demanding. And children who are hungry. So again, I was speaking to Carmel McConnell, who, who runs right. the Breakfast, yes. who founded the, yes. the, the charity. And I was telling her about this research 
And she said, well, we see the same thing in our schools. We, when we're onboarding a school, we'll look at their rates of, of fights, for example, in the children. And she said, when we compared the children who were, the school that was onboarding, so weren't having breakfasts, um, at that point with the children who were, there was a 30% reduction in fights in first play in the children who were having breakfast. And when you think about the the importance of being, you know, well behaved for children yeah. in their academic and educational achievement, it's actually really important, mm. right? Being able to yeah. sit still, being able to focus, to um, concentrate, to not be labelled yeah. as the naughty one, to not be sent outside to keep you from disrupting yes. the rest of the class, all of this. And to think that at least for some of those children, for the, some of those children who are at greater risk of being expelled because of their behaviour or who find it difficult to concentrate because you know, their, their, their brains literally mm. can't settle, to think that that could be improved by either breakfast or improved nutrition through a supplement or something like that again it's a huge indictment on our society that children might be suffering in this way for lack of adequate food yeah absolutely and talking about food you've obviously talked about the things that we should be looking at to improve and include the b12 the omega-3s are lots of lovely green leafy veg and all of that what about the things that we should be limiting Are, are there things out there that are dominating our diet that are actually you know contributing to this yes and you know, whilst I typically, and I tend to have, you know, a kind of, I say a food positive approach, you know, there's room for everything and um, let's not demonize food. If we're really thinking specifically about brain health and kind of mental health outcomes, there's really, I'm afraid to say, no good news about sugar sweet no. um there is so, not <laughs> there's you know there there really there no. really isn't um and even you know in studies where they've taken again healthy young men and given them three you know, sugar sweetened beverages a week so not a huge amount and we can imagine that people are drink and other studies have looked at um 600 meals a day which would be kind of two cans a day mm. but across the spectrum what you see very very quickly are increases in systemic in markers of systemic inflammation so their their c-reactive protein their levels of these cytokines in their in their bloodstream go up which is not good because what we don't want is too much elevated inflammation because that can yeah. cross over into the brain um and and cause kind of negative outcomes for the brain and also again on on a kind of there was a study that looked at just one week on a Western style diet. So they took again, healthy people and had them have, uh, have two Belgian waffles for breakfast. Um, and then through the day for the week, they said, can you have one kind of fast food meal every day? Mm -hmm. Just one. And what they found was an impairment in what's called hippocampal dependent learning. So the hippocampus is the, part of the brain which is essential for learning and memory is the part of the brain that is most and most damaged in Alzheimer's disease so it's your seat of memory it coordinates your memories and and organizes that you know it's the gateway for your memories and and it's therefore also really important for learning organizing you know where did I learn that and how do I put that together and where do I remember that from and within a week there was impairments in the structure and function One of the campus on a Western style diet. That seven is days. just staggering. And so again, when we're thinking about yeah. social inequalities 
and health inequalities and children who have had sure. no other option but to eat a particular type of diet because mm. it's all that they could afford, then actually we're thinking that simply for the misfortune mm. of having been born poor, that these children are going to have differences in the way that their brains develop and, and, and obviously all of the kind of downstream outcomes of that. I guess the only bit of good news here, um, coming back to that, I'm desperately trying to find something, uh, coming back to that word earlier, uh, hope, is that we do know that these studies exist. We are aware of the information. Yes, there is, in my opinion, a massive disinformation campaign and a suppression of, of certain bits of information mm-hmm. by those who whose objectives it doesn't suit. But there are hopefully enough people out there to to make a noise and to care like you do to to want to get this information across and we just have to keep on keeping on don't you think I mean we just have to keep talking about it to spread the word to share the information to try and empower others and try and limit the the kind of it's often not even disinformation it's just the suppression of the information that's there Um, but just bring it out and, and shine a light on it and I think what's been very interesting for me working in this space over the last few years and and interviewing lots of really experienced, wonderful people like yourself is how many people do actually just get get quashed and uh, or or, or even, you know, sort of deliberately trolled um, just just to try and Mm -hmm. kind of put them off talking about these things. But, you know, I guess you need to be a well-being warrior here, don't you? And just continue. What what Mm -hmm. what motivates you to to spur you on? Because talking about your work and presumably, you know, going into prisons and seeing firsthand the damage that is being done. How how do you personally Mm -hmm. fortify yourself and, and carry on? Um, well, I think I'm, I'm mostly fueled by rage, actually. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> um, and so p- particularly with these, because you're absolutely right. When I spoke to um, Dr. Bernard Gesh, who did the first 2002, the, the AIDS, Ellsbury study, and I spoke to him and I said, you know, this is incredible research. And, and he said, yes, I know. <laughs> um, he said, but no one's listening anymore. Like, no one's listening. I've tried to talk about, you know, and he spent 20 years trying to get this information actioned and he's tired you know just listening to him he was just exhausted and I became furious on his behalf you know that he'd done we talk about investing in research and following the science and this Mm. is good quality science Mm. with a big effect size and and outcomes that really affect the whole of society because when prisoners are released from society yeah they're back to being our neighbours and the people we work with and our delivery, you know, all of that. Mm. So this has huge implications for society. And I just think it's outrageous that the Home Office, you know, the MOJ is doing nothing with it. And I'm a big proponent of of, of utilising anger appropriately. Yeah. And I guess this is, you know, talking about anger and, and kind of mitigating anger. But anger is an emotion... A, it's an emotion of defense when you think when you see something that's unjust and you want to improve things. So it's it's your signal, I always say to my my clients and patients, you know, it's your if you feel anger, it's a signal of injustice, either that you recognize in the world around you or that you're experiencing yourself. And if you can listen to that and understand what you think is unfair, then you are in a much better position to then 
do what you can and, and, and channel that feeling into trying to do something about it. So I, I, I just stay angry. <laughs> Kimberly, it's such a delight to talk to you. I would love to talk to you again because I just feel that we've only just touched on so many vitally important things. I'd love to do more to be able to share and amplify the work that you're doing. It's it's so important. I know that you've spoken today on so many extraordinarily helpful and positive messages. I hope that everybody who's been listening will share this widely and raise awareness and feel the anger and channel it in a very positive way. I'm so grateful for your time today. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you so, so much. It's been been lovely. Thank you for indulging me. <laughs> well, I hope you feel both inspired, empowered, and perhaps enraged in equal measures. And that is it for today's episode. Huge thanks to Kimberly. And as always, you will find all the links and the resources that we mentioned over on lizalwellbeing.com. And there you can sign up for the free weekly newsletter filled with plenty of healthy omega-3 filled recipes and more and tips for living really well. Huge thanks to all of you who have left us such lovely reviews, particularly on iTunes. Super grateful. It really does help others to find the show as does clicking those little five star review buttons at the end of this podcast broadcast so thank you and until the next time go well bye-bye Lizal Wellbeing Show is presented by me, Lizal, with production by Amaryllis Earl and Harry Trevithick at Heart Dialogue. With grateful thanks to my producer, Ellie Smith, assistant researcher, Martha Comerford, and guest booker, Millie de la Morinière. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I am a hydrated girly, But sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, this is Kristen. And this is Jen from My Mom So Hard. And we're here to talk about By Heart. Do you remember when you were nursing and you were like, I want to give the best thing I can to my baby? 
Well, we've got that for you. It's called By Heart, and it is a infant nutrition company built from the ground up to deliver real innovation on behalf of babies and parents. Curious about By Heart? Redeem your welcome offer at byheart.com slash podcast with code MOMS20 for a limited time. Additional terms and conditions apply. Tell them my mom so hard sent you. <laughs> 